This is the ACR 2022 topic panel. In this podcast, our panel will discuss their best abstracts on the topics they were covering at our meeting. Hope you enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. I am Dr. Rachel Tate. I am in my office, actually. Uh, I'm from West Palm Beach, Florida. And tonight I have the extreme privilege of actually seeing the faces of some of our team PSA. So without further ado, I am going to let everybody introduce themselves. This is team PSA for ACR 2022. We'll start with Olga. Hi, I'm Olga Petrina. I'm a rheumatologist at Carsdale Medical Group in New York metro area. And, you know, I attended ACR virtually this year. So I'm happy to see you all as well and share what we have learned. That's great. Robert. Yeah, I'm Robert Chow, a rheumatologist over in the D.C. area in Fairfax, Virginia. Excited to join everyone. Yeah, we're glad everybody's here. Trish. Hi, I'm Trish. I'm a rheumatology trainee from Dublin, Ireland, and really excited for tonight's session. And you're up late tonight. Up late, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, Dr. Elaine Husney. Elaine, how are you? Hi, everyone. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm from Cleveland, from the Cleveland Clinic, and we had our first snowstorm already while I was away. <laughs> well, that is some news to come home to, huh? <laughs> well, given that this is Team PSA and some of our theme has been, you know, the best of, I want to start with, tell me your best of, or the one thing you learned this year from ACR 2022 in Philly. And I'm going to start with Olga. All right. So my best off and like what interested me the most this year is the effect of age and gender on the phenotypical presentation of psoriatic arthritis and their response to treatment. I found this very interesting and made me think, like, do we have to approach patients differently based on, on their age and their gender? So start with a, um, abstract 1234, which is the abstract that compared ultrasound findings of patients uh, who were younger versus older, meaning younger than 40 or older than 40, and as well, female to male uh, comparison. In this um, abstract, they found no difference in uh, terms of gender-related presentation of the disease, but the age seems to matter. And then they found that patients who are older tend to have higher uh, um, synovitis scores. They also usually have higher uh, antocytis scores and more inflammatory changes uh, seen on the ultrasound uh, disease. It was also interesting to find out that patients who are older with psoriatic arthritis tend to have more, more small joint involvement as opposed to larger joints like hips or knees. And uh, it would be interesting also to know how they respond to treatment, you know, but that's a whole different story and a whole different study to talk about. And then similarly to, uh, to this uh, abstract, there is another one, 0377, which actually uh, evaluated patients based on their age of onset of the disease, not necessarily age they were, they were evaluated. And what they found in this study that patients who had the onset of the disease before age of 40 uh, were more likely to have findings of sacroiliitis and enthesitis. And patients who were diagnosed at, this, at the age more than 60 were more likely to have more structural damage Probably they had those symptoms for longer, just didn't know about them. They're just my speculations. They're more likely to be male than female. And they often, interestingly enough, had more involvement in upper extremities as opposed to lower extremities. 
At the same time, it, uh, it uh, had no effect on their quality of life or daily activity based on age, which I find very interesting as well. But all in all, it seems like, you know, disease is not necessarily the same when we are younger or older. And then maybe it makes sense to reevaluate those patients, you know, as they progress in life with their disease. What do you think? I mean, I think that's really interesting. Trish, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm a big kind of advocate for um, appreciating aging in rheumatic diseases. Um, that's my area of research interest. So I definitely think, you know, we're dealing with a totally different ballgame, dealing with um, like patients over 65 versus younger. And I think this study even supports it and how they present, like there is a difference um, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And as Olga was saying, I think there's just more research to be done in this area. I think we're only beginning to understand it. Well, it's funny, you know, there was a trend even a couple of years ago where we started talking about the five M's as it relates to rheumatology and kind of the bridging with gerontology. So I really like these types of studies because I think it really allows us to have more confidence in how we see patients. Robert, are you seeing any of these types of changes in your clinical practice based on what Olga was just talking about? Yeah, I think not, not just the changes, but also, I'm not sure about you guys, but also how these patients approach their goals of care with me. You know, for example, if I see a 50, 60 year old patient with nuance or newly diagnosed, let's say psoriatic arthritis, you know, uh, Mine and sometimes their approach is perhaps not complete prevention because they've probably come to me with already some complications and sequelae versus the 19-year-old, the 20-year-old. We're, we're trying to be as aggressive as we can, as we can and their substrate, like their, you know, their, their comorbidities or lack thereof, allow us to be much more aggressive versus, you know, someone who maybe doesn't want us to be as aggressive and also does, uh, doesn't want to sort of be subjected to those um, kind of biologics and immunotherapies, especially sometimes, you know, obviously during a pandemic. And I think as well that feeds into, you know, what is your target? What are you treating to? Mm -hmm. Like for an eight-year-old woman, it might be just that she's able to do her own little bit of cooking at home versus our aggressive treat to target in her younger. So I think that's definitely something as well that we need to consider. Beautifully stated. Yeah, I think, you know, what's great in this meeting, you know, this theme that Olga just kind of taught us is that subgroup analysis are important, right? Like, you know, we're beginning to like be more personalized, which is what I love, right? We now have frameworks, not one size fits all. So kind of exciting. It is exciting. Robert, did you want to go ahead and go? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm going to touch on upon a, a subject that I think a lot of us, again, face in clinic. Um, it's what do you do with psoriatic arthritis patients or really any patients, uh, but today, of course, focusing on psoriatic arthritis patients when they um, don't respond to the first line biologic. In this case, it's uh, you know the TNF inhibitors. Um, so this was, uh, I think, one of the few um, abstracts focusing on whether you should cycle or switch biologics. And this was abstract 1600. Um, this study was, uh, you know, using the Cori Vitas um, uh, registry, which I think previously just used to be called Corona. Um, and they had almost 400 patients, 394 patients. Um, and of course, either um, first line uh, TNF inhibitor switching to a, another non-TNF inhibitor or cycling to a second line TNF inhibitor. Um, they did find some trends, you know, the keyword is trends. Um, they found that at six month follow-up, 
the switchers, the people who switched to a non-TNF inhibitor, uh, did have an increased likelihood of achieving all clinical outcomes. They actually had about a 70% greater likelihood of achieving minimal disease activity, also four times higher likelihood of uh, achieving the SPARC uh, index for enthesitis. Um, but there was also some decent response with the, with the uh, cyclers. So I think, you know, uh, uh, Elaine will also talk about later that, you know, I think at this point, uh, I don't think we have concrete evidence on exactly what to do uh, with uh, biologics in the world of psoriatic arthritis. I think uh, one thing that really stuck with me was what uh, Dr. Eric Rutterman said from, uh, I think, some either one or two ACRs ago, which is a biologic is a biologic is a biologic in psoriatic arthritis. I don't think we have quite the tools necessary to determine which one is the best for you. Um, and even if we did, um, you know, I think besides skin and, but even if we did, um, most of the time we are kind of restrained by what insurance companies will allow us to prescribe anyway. That's true. So maybe I can quickly talk about mine since it follows Robert's and then we can discuss it. But my, um, abstract that I want to talk about is 2149. And that, again, just like Robert's theme, cycling versus swapping strategies in PSA. And this one is from a Portuguese um, registry, uh, and it's uh, Dr. Glomeris and colleagues. And the reason I picked this one, because I know this has been, as Robert had mentioned, a hot topic. Um, this one was rather large, more you know, about 450 patients, and they had nice long-term follow-up. So that's why I chose this one out to 24 months. Um, and same as Robert said, whether or not after your first failure, are you, um, you know, cycling through the same class, another TNF inhibitor, for example, or are we swapping a new mechanism of action? And this one was looking at secukinumab or ustekinumab. Um, and after two years, uh, which is a little different than Robert's um, abstract, this one showed that the retention rates were similar. Didn't matter. So, you know, I just thought that's nice that we contrasted uh, some of this. So even though we want sort of the we want the best algorithm. We want the recipe of what to do next. Seems like the data is not um, supporting one or the other, but love to hear what do you guys think. Yeah, Trish, you had a comment. What were you gonna say? <clears throat> um, yeah, so I don't know. I just think even for patients, like our, obviously the number of therapeutics we have available to us in psoriatic arthritis keeps increasing. So I think, you know, even to go to a patient and say, okay, you were on say a TNF and now that didn't work. So we're switching totally to a totally different mechanism. I think there's something in that for the patient even, uh, but you know, it is definitely reassuring Elaine's study. I think that's, as you were saying, two-year follow-up larger group. Um, we have the option of staying and um, cycling as well. So yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Yeah, and it's interesting. That question interests me as well during the meeting and actually ran the poll on Twitter. I asked people what do they actually do in their practices. And 77% of the people said they're switching to a different mechanism and only 23 said they stay in cycle TNFs. So yeah, but still we need to learn. <laughs> I want to do that subgroup analysis too of who's staying and why. You know, I think it's right. because as Robert mentioned earlier, we, we sometimes have pre-described algorithms through pharmaceutical companies, not pharmaceutical companies, pardon me, but through um, insurance, through payers. And so you feel a little bit um, maybe hammered by that. And I, I think that can be part of what's contributing too. 
I think in Ireland, we're actually quite lucky. We aren't as restrained by that. We don't have the same availability, but um, we're not as tied by insurance companies. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's sort of a um, a push to want to do a mechanism, a different mechanism of action, just because we have so much. It's like, you know, a candy store. It's like, okay, why don't we just try another? So I guess this one struck me because it really didn't show a different retention rate. So maybe we should be keeping them because you know they have a long way to go with this disease because we don't have a cure. So maybe we shouldn't such a hot potato keep switching. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know, maybe stay within class and then if they really non-responder, you go. Well, I think that's true, right? If it's a non-responder versus a lack of response or loss of response, right? Right. So Robert, you were gonna say something? Yeah, I think, I mean, I practice a little bit conservatively. I tell patients, you know, if there's any response, you know, at all, because I feel like if we just hop classes from TNFs to whatever, IL-17, then we kind of give up on the other four TNFs, you know? So if there's any response, perhaps there's a slightly better response with the other TNF. And I think, you know, these studies are all obviously both mine and yours were retrospective using large registries. I'm not sure about yours, but I forgot to mention for mine, you know, uh, the, the switchers already had a baseline worse disease activity. So these perhaps are patients who are already set up to planning to switch anyway. And you're just looking at what happens when you plan to switch anyway. So always difficult, you know, with retrospective studies. And, and I think on your studies, especially with uh, looking at, you know, IL-1223 versus IL-17, perhaps that's just the study showing how similar they are in, 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 instead of, you know, comparing to TNF inhibitors. So all these are tricky. I think, you know, again, I, I know there are some uh, precision medicine studies in the works for psoriatic arthritis, but until we have concrete evidence, these are interesting, still sparks a conversation, but I think for real life practical purposes, unclear. And then at the end of the day, who will pay for the med? I think that's, that's very important. So that's my question to both of you. Does this change how you practice? Probably not, probably not. But interesting, interesting inmates. I'm always, so there's two things I'm always looking at conferences uh, is was what to do with these kind of patients because these are life, real life practical questions. And also for me personally, just gut microbiome, that's a separate discussion for another day. Yeah, I like Robert's term, uh, conservative. Mm -hmm. I think the way sometimes we practice, like we either fall in that conservative group or we kind of fall in that new is better group. Uh, so obviously no right or wrong answer. Uh, I am probably on the more conservative side because I feel like they have a long way to go. You know, obviously, if they're primary non-responders, I probably switch faster uh, for sure. But if that is that partial responder, I, I, I think I might give it another try. Uh, uh, so but like I said, two two schools, right? Conservative versus the more progressive group. So. Absolutely. Um, Trish, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. Um, so absolutely, there was so many abstracts um, this year. The one that stood out to me most, and I think that kind of stuck with me throughout, was um, abstract 1044. So this was by Prof Leahy Eder and our colleagues in the University of Toronto. Uh, so this was a preliminary analysis of the DIPSA study. So the DIPSA study is looking at the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet versus standard uh, diet in those with psoriatic arthritis. 
So this preliminary analysis just aimed to look at the dietary patterns and the metabolic factors of the patients who've been enrolled to date. So I think there's 32 patients enrolled and the results to me anyway were just shocking. So 71% of patients were overweight. So that's just um, under three quarters of patients and 47% had metabolic disorder. So that's just under 50%. And then the interesting part was the correlated dietary patterns with disease outcomes. So what they showed was uh, those who had lower sugar intake had lower fatigue and lower PZ scores. Um, on the reverse of that, those who had increased saturated fat intake had increased enthesitis scores. Patients who like ate more whole fruits um, had reduced tender joint counts. Uh, so this for me highlighted, I think, two main things. So the first thing is, you know, obesity and metabolic syndrome is a very real, very highly prevalent thing in psoriatic arthritis. I think we need to increase our awareness, increase our detection of this in our patients. It's something that we maybe sometimes ignore. Um, and the second thing is, like we are what we eat. Um, I definitely think when it comes to psoriatic arthritis anyway, it does seem like what is in our diet, you know, our disease activity responds to that. So I think studies like the dips are like there, we really need them. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I get asked in clinic, you know, oh, doctor, is there certain food I should add to my diet or is there certain diet I should be, you know, we kind of sweat a little bit because the evidence base just isn't there. So um, I think like I'm really looking forward to the results of the DIPSA um, and the impact that they have. I'd be interested to see uh, your guys' opinion on it, obviously as an adjunct to our conventional care, but um, yeah. And they're still enrolling, right? So they're still enrolling, I think, and even now numbers are a lot higher, but that was just the initial kind of cohort that they had and um, they did the analysis on it. Yeah. Do you know how they um, judge, um, Trish, how they judge uh, sort of compliance with one over the other? How, how do yeah. they is it just so ask this yeah, so this abstract actually didn't go into that. It wasn't about the actual study that's ongoing. It was more the analysis of the initial patients that they'd enrolled. So um, the dietary that they were looking for, it was in retrospect, say when they were initially enrolled over the last week, you know, their compliance with sugar, et cetera. So the actual compliance with the Mediterranean or DASH, they haven't gone into that yet. Because um, I yeah. feel like anyone can do anything for a couple weeks. <laughs> Then I, including myself, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just thinking my personal experience, like how do they get those patients to stay on? Yeah. But I think even if we show anything from it, like I think if you have an evidence base for your patients in clinic, like if you say, well, in this study, these patients, you know, did this and look at the domains that improved. Um, I think it would at least provide a lot more motivation uh, for patients anyway. For sure. Yeah. Do you have those patients, anybody, do you have those patients who stop sugar and feel better in terms of their fatigue? That's what I found really interesting about this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I think a lot of people say that, yes, that may adjust their diet. They do feel better. We don't know if it's placebo effect or not, but they do. <laughs> I have you ever tried to stop sugar? I, I would feel sad personally, but <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> But interesting. But, yeah, it's hard because, you know, if you make these big shifts in your diet, I also find that they make big shifts in other things. They start moving more. They start being very health conscious. So I think those those non-contributor factors are difficult to tease out sometimes because the minute you make these big changes, don't you feel like, you know, you'll sleep better, you'll 
you know, have some positive energy, right? You know, so, so I think for me, a lot of these diet studies, which I think is, is really important to study, as you said, Trish, I also think we have to do better at understanding compliance and, and continuity, like longevity of doing these changes. I think that's where that motivational behavior component becomes really important, which none of us as rheumatologists are probably in that field, but something we need to grab them over and help us. Yeah, I agree. I think the two big things you you talk hit upon is are uh, big and, and compliance, really, because you know I tell patients today I get this question almost every day, what diet, what food, what should I eat or not eat, and I just say the blunt truth. I'm mean, listen. If I tell you today to change your diet completely, it's very rare it's going to happen, and it's going to very rare it's going to stick with you for forever because you've been eating like this for 30, 40, 50 years. It's probably not going to change tomorrow, but baby steps, you know, if you're eating, if your vice is potato chips like mine, try to cut those out. If your vice is lots of sugars, try to cut those out. And then, you know, for me personally, I, like you mentioned, I know if I work out in the morning, I'm probably not reaching for, you know, ice cream later on. Um, today I had a long clinic day. So before this, you know, Trisha, you just said, I am, you are what you eat. I just had meatloaf before this meeting. So I hope I am not meatloaf. <laughs> But, you know, when, when you have a lot of tough day, sometimes some comfort food, you know, does goes a long way. So and, and I think those baby steps will eventually lead to bigger steps. And then th I think that's where compliance kicks in. And I think that's why we see so many different diets every decade, every five years, you know, Atkins, keto, whatever is because people can't stick to them. You know, you try them for a little bit and then you go back to what you're doing. And you try a new diet and you kind of yo-yo your weight back and forth. Um, but, yeah, I think if we can somehow figure those two out, we can make some big changes. I do think the reason they chose the Mediterranean in the dash, though, it isn't necessarily like low calorie. It's more the foods that you're eating. So I do think they were quite mindful of that in it. But absolutely, yeah, compliance is it going forward. My short answer to patients is always just Mediterranean diet. I, I think that is probably the prototypical yeah. best one, if you will. <clears throat> exactly what's in it. I'm not 100 percent, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the Mediterranean diet really stresses that plant based foods, you know, olive oils, nuts and seeds and plants, you know, I, I think that really distinguishes it from the other diets. So. Well, and I also think that from an obesity itself standpoint, obesity increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. There are all sorts of other risk factors, let alone their psoriatic disease. So when you find something that works for one patient, especially when it comes to something they can be compliant with, I think the Mediterranean diet, it, it sounds less um, scary to a patient, right? It sounds a little more like, okay, maybe I can introduce olive oil instead of vegetable oil. Like there are certain things, oh, I can still have, you, know, you, you start kind of meeting that patient where they're at. And you're right. When we make these lifestyle changes, we may stop smoking. We may get better sleep. Like it changes, it shifts the entire paradigm. So, um, I think it's that this is going to be one to study and one to watch for, for me too, Trish. I think that's true. <laughs> Now, I know Elaine had one more really great um, abstract. Can you tell us about that one? Sure. Do we have time? Yeah, we definitely have time. All right. So it's abstract 1487. Uh, I'm just going to change you a little because it's a little more basic science-y, but kind of maybe important for us clinically. It's differentiation of therapeutic uh, antibodies targeting uh, interleukin-23. Uh, so this was really interesting. It was by uh, James Kruger, Dennis McGonigal's group, uh, and, and maybe you've, you've looked over it, uh, but it was in this uh, poster session on Sunday. 
And it looked at the relative, you know, sort of important differences maybe between the, the two different IL-23, so between gaselkamab and rizinkizumab. So many of us know that, you know, within class, you would think, you know, they all have the same potency, efficacy that got its FDA approval. But this study looked specifically at the FC portion and showed some interesting differences uh, between gaselkamab and rizinkizumab. Um, and so the FC region, <clears throat> Interesting that um, in Gosalcomab, um, one um, was a crystallized FC region and the other one was a mutated FC region. You can read the abstract to have uh, you know, more details on that. But the bottom line is that Gosalcomab binds uh, more, has more affinity to the CD24 positive myeloid cells. And why that's important is because we also know that patients um, can be enriched when their skin is actively inflamed. Uh, so could we make a conclusion that gasalcomab perhaps um, binds to these inflamed areas a little bit tighter and maybe a molecular difference that we see within class? Um, so obviously early data, but whether or not this may lead to a more durable response. Uh, you know, I just thought what an interesting concept because most of us just kind of throw within class altogether. And now this, there's some molecular changes that we can start thinking about. So this is sort of a translational study that also can maybe change the way clinically we may think about choosing. So just like Robert and I were just thinking about cycling versus swapping, that's why I kind of added this one, like, hey, maybe if our technology gets better, uh, we may be able to look at more um, between class differences um, to help explain some of the durability of responses. But wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, isn't this the like the golden ticket? We want to know, right? Even in between classes, this is this is really the crux of what we do. I think this is really fascinating. What do you guys think, Robert? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I think, again, it touches upon the cycling versus switching. And, you know, I, I always love and welcome sort of head-to-head, -head, you know, whether it's within the class or TNF versus IL-17, or in this case, IL-23. Um, I know those studies are seldom done because of other reasons. And I know when it's kind of, when they throw it on into the study, it's not really powered, but it's always nice because it gives us information as clinicians, you know, what to do exactly in that cycling versus switching. And I think, uh, like you mentioned, Rachel, the the topic of, of uh, you know, this precision medicine really is, is kind of the, the, what we're searching for, it's the holy grail. And I think there's even ongoing studies, you know, looking at phenotyping patients, you know, based on TH17. And, and, and you know, perhaps someone comes in, they are this age, they are this gender with this cellular kind of profile, boom, this is the biologic of choice instead of doing the typical kind of, you know, called step therapy that we use here in the States. Um, so very exciting, obviously, in the future. I mean, head-to-heads give you confidence, right? It, it almost gives you a sense of relief, and, and that's important, too. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? Okay. Well, I want to thank you for your big hits. Now, we do have a little bit more time, so I'm hoping you can give me a quick hit or something you really enjoyed. There were so many really mm -hmm. great abstracts. I personally missed the posters. Like I wish we had them in person. Um, I thought that was really lacking, but 
what we had was really great. And we had a lot of information. We're looking at subsets of patients, whether it be gender related to make sure that all of our classifications fit it, all the way down to the nitty gritty regarding disease state changes. And then of course with medications. So if you guys can give me one of your last quick hits, what would that be? What do you want our audience to know tonight? I'll start with you, Robert, if you're up. Yeah, just quickly, this is abstract 0402, focus on opioid use in psoriatic arthritis. Touched upon all the keystones we know about, doesn't work, don't use in psoriatic arthritis, led, you know, led to more uh, disease state. Sorry, but for me personally, the most interesting thing was they found uh, opioid users who had psoriatic arthritis end up paying more for healthcare costs and medication costs. So I think, you know, we all, you know, we say, no, we're not gonna prescribe opioids, it doesn't work. But perhaps should we pause and think, why are they on opioids? You know, if I'm someone who's paying a lot for, for, for um, you know, a methotrexate or a biologic, I'm probably not going to pay that. I'm probably going to get a cheaper route. And maybe just my disease is not fully treated. Or maybe, you know, my fibromyalgia that someone's treating with Percocet is actually enthesitis, you know, and, and perhaps we just need to do a deeper dive. So I thought that was actually the kind of interesting part of that abstract. Patricia, do you have a point on that Trish? Um, yeah no absolutely um, I think that's something that we probably know of like and even supports you know we shouldn't be jumping to opiates I think that was the key thing I got out of that as well yeah. I agree Trish want to give us your last quick hit? So even in the interest of time, I'm going to give, I suppose, my main take home from ACR 2022. So it wasn't what I went into ACR thinking that it would be my main take home. But I think our management does go beyond medication. Um, so obviously the diet, but also sleep. Um, I know like there was a brilliant study done on sleep and the high prevalence of sleep and psoriatic arthritis and how these patients aren't adequately treated for it and the effects that that has on disease outcomes. So I do think that we need to look at our patients more holistically. Obviously, again, in conjunction with our conventional medicine, but um, there's more to what we do than just for pharmacotherapy and um, we do need to see the patient more as a whole that was what I my main take home I mean I think that that resonates for us Elaine do you have a comment yeah I think for me what really hit is uh how we're getting closer with our translational studies to influence our clinical studies and I think that's how I chose some of these abstracts today was to try to uh you know remind us uh, that uh, we're going to go a lot faster in accelerating discoveries if we work together with basic science and clinical, which has been traditionally, I think, very separate in the past. Um, and I think this meeting now, maybe just because of all the state of the art, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, products that we have now in terms of looking at molecular differences are are highlighted. Um, I just want to give a shout out that I'm really excited to see this kind of. Uh, basic clinical and then translational work that will help all of us take care of patients. It's really funny that you would say that because I was going to end with that comment or something similar because I finally feel like we're we're finally picking that snowball is just really coming almost like where we were with ACR in like 2017 2015 with um, RA you know, how we started having these more robust conversations and we we're able to talk about um, this as a disease state and look differently at it. And I just, I really appreciate that. 
Olga, did you have any last comments? Yes, I think my takeaway here is with so many treatment options available, so different approaches to patients, you should be open to um, you know, individualizing care and being more personalized in, in approach to our patients. For some person, changing mechanism of action works. For another, combination of medical treatment with the diet. A third person, combination of biologics and non-biologics. So just you know, being open to different approaches to the uh, in each and every case is something that I learned in this meeting. Oh, I agree. You guys are rock stars, Team PSA. I am so proud to be a part of your team. This has really been very. It's been a very unique ACR, right? We had some of us live. We had some of us virtually. I really appreciate your time. As always, you know, I'm a big proponent for sharing your passion and your talent with Room Now, and I really appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to say Team PSA until ACR 2023. I'll see you guys soon, okay? See you, bye.